reading from Exodus 9, 13 through 35. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock, and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh heard his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such had never been seen in all the land of Egypt until it became, since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. And only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and, Mo and called Moses and, and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there had never been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall not stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and, and emmer were not struck down, for they are uh, latent coming up. So Moses went out of the city from, from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading from Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Almighty Father, uh, as we come now to uh, this story, as we seek to hear you speak to us, what a remarkable thing that we expect you to speak to us. An audacious thing to expect. And we, but we ask you to. We ask you to use this story to reach down underneath uh, maybe the parts of our lives that, that we're, um, maybe the, the bits where we're, we're believing our own marketing, um, but missing the truth. And will you make yourself very clear to us? And will you set us free? Lord, that's what we ask for. We ask you to set us free, just like you set Israel free. Set us free and do whatever it takes to get us there. Set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please uh, sit down. It's helpful if you turn back to pages uh, 7 and 8. We're continuing a series in the uh, book of Exodus. Now, uh, we're skipping uh, a little bit of material uh, this week. So we've, we've skipped a few chapters from last week, so I'll try to um, catch us up just a little bit. But one of the key questions that we've got to wrestle with all the way through the book of Exodus is uh, this question. What does it mean to be free? Um, Exodus is a book about freedom. So it demands that we ask the question, what do we mean by that when we say freedom? What do we mean when we say free? And, um, and, and I can imagine that, you know, there's kind of an obvious answer when it comes to the book of Exodus. Uh, I can imagine somebody saying, well, it's clear. Um, Exodus is a story about Israel being enslaved. We meet them there's in slavery. That's not freedom. That's clear. And then uh, at the end, they've left Egypt. So I can imagine somebody saying uh, freedom, according to the book of Exodus, is clear. It's a political emancipation. That's freedom, and clearly that's, uh, that's, that's right, as far as it goes. But then I can imagine somebody else coming and saying, well, yeah, that's correct, but it's not enough. Um, actually, uh, I can imagine somebody saying, freedom has to be deeper than just not enslavement. Um, we all know that you can be not politically enslaved and yet nevertheless not deeply be free. I can imagine somebody saying, um, real freedom uh, is is something like the power and the opportunity and the authority to determine your own life. It is the power and authority of self-determination. Israel not only needs to be uh, politically free, but they need to be in a position where they are, have the authority and the power to make their own choices and determine the life that they uh, do. They need self-determination. That's freedom. And I'm sure we could uh, share other definitions of freedom. That second one, I think, probably has a little bit of um, uh, grit to it for some of us. Um, the idea that freedom, um, this is in a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves, right? Freedom is the authority and the power to determine your own future. And that sounds, you know, that, that, that has some force behind it in my mind, because if you could imagine yourself 
um, being forced to follow somebody else's decision, and that's clearly not freedom, like that sounds terrible, right? But on the other hand, if, if imagine yourself if you had all the authority and all the power in the world and all the resources in the world to determine exactly the way you wanted your life to go, like that sounds, even as I say that, that, that sounds kind of good to me, um, doesn't it? All right, why, why am I saying this? Here's why. One of the striking things about the book of Exodus is that the book of Exodus says, well, we've got to go even deeper in our understanding of freedom. Freedom goes beyond and is deeper than either of those two definitions. According to the book of Exodus, freedom has to be more than just political emancipation. It includes that, but it has to go beyond that. And it also is deeper than just self-determination. What we're going to find today is that Pharaoh is all about self-determination. And nevertheless, we find out unexpectedly that he is enslaved. Nevertheless. There are two kinds of bondage in the book of Exodus. There is political slavery and there is slavery to self. And according to the book of Exodus, both are bad. Both are really bad. There are two kinds of slavery in Exodus, but only one kind of freedom. And the freedom underneath all the other types of freedom in the book of Exodus is the freedom that comes from living in a loving bond relationship with God. That's where real freedom comes from. That's what I want to show you today. And in order to do that, I want to uh, flesh out two points. The first is this. I want to show you the heart of spiritual bondage in that story from Exodus. The heart of spiritual bondage. We're going to focus on Pharaoh. But then secondly, the heart of spiritual freedom. The heart of spiritual bondage, the heart of spiritual freedom. First of all, spiritual bondage. Let me catch up the story because, like I said, we skipped a few chapters this week. Um, so this is previously in the book of Exodus. So um, Israel is enslaved, right? Remember this? Um, in Egypt, Egypt is the superpower of the day. Things keep getting worse for Israel as time goes on. So this is in fast forward. God calls Moses. Moses is a failed revolutionary turned uh, exiled shepherd. And God calls him and says, hey, Pharaoh, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to go to the greatest superpower of your day. Uh, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Now, Moses whines a lot, and he makes lots of excuses. And then God persuades him. And finally, he goes. And so he goes to Pharaoh. We saw this last week. But Pharaoh flatly refuses. Pharaoh says, what are you talking about, Moses? I do not listen to slaves, and I do not listen to the God of slaves. And I will absolutely not let Israel go. And that means that we're off to the races. Um, the battle between God and Pharaoh for the freedom of Israel has begun. And what happens in the chapters that we skipped is that God ups the pressure on Pharaoh to uh, help him understand the choice he needs to make. What God does is he implements uh, 10 rounds of sanctions. Uh, traditionally, we call them plagues. But they're sanctions. Everybody knows about diplomatic sanctions, economic sanctions, right? Um, if, you want, if there's two countries are mad at each other and you want to increase pressure on the other country without racing off to war, you, you, you use diplomatic or economic sanctions. Um, and that's what these 10 plagues, that's how they function in the book of Exodus. God is not racing to direct confrontation. He's upping the pressure. 
And so some of the plagues uh, um, target the economy. Some of the plagues uh, target the health of the nation. Uh, some of them address uh, standard of living and so forth. And by the third plague, there's 10 rounds of sanctions. By the, by the third plague, uh, Pharaoh's advisors come to him and say, hey, uh, Pharaoh, this is, this is, we're dealing with, with a big God here. Um, we've got a big problem. This is the finger of God. Pharaoh, you're going to have to negotiate. But Pharaoh won't have anything of it. And very importantly, his heart is hardened. He refuses to let Israel go. And so now our reading picks up the seventh plague. And it's a hailstorm that just demolishes the, uh, the economy because it demolishes the crop, at least one the first round of crops for the season. And faced with this hailstorm, Pharaoh finally nearly just about surrenders. Look at verse seven, uh, 27. After the hailstorm, Pharaoh sent and calls Moses and Aaron and says to them, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Did you ever think you'd hear Pharaoh say that? Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Now, man, if the story ends there, it sounds really, really good, right? Man, the sanctions worked. Fantastic. Um, Pharaoh feels the pressure, he feels the bite, his advisors are saying you're going to have to negotiate, he finally gives in, Israel is free, hooray. Right? Not so fast. Verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And the Lord did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Pause. Here's my question. Why the flip-flop for Pharaoh? What is happening in Pharaoh that means he can clearly see in one moment that there's no way to win in this battle? He needs to negotiate at the very least, or he needs to surrender. What makes him come to that conclusion, but then almost instantly, you know, immediately renege on all of that and go back. Why, to shift the conversation, why does Pharaoh act like an addict? He sees it's going to get him. He feels real bad one moment, promises to change, and then is right back at it as soon as he can. What is happening in Pharaoh's heart? Remember all through Exodus? Look at Pharaoh's heart. Watch it. What is it that's holding his heart? Well, look at verse 14. The Lord, in verse 14, go back to the beginning. Verse 14, the Lord is warning Pharaoh. And he says this. He says, Pharaoh, this time I'm going to send all my plagues on you yourself. But do you see the words, you yourself? You could translate it literally. It says, I'm going to send all my plagues on your heart. Why? Here's the idea. Pharaoh's, or uh, the plagues, these sanctions against Pharaoh, they're not just aimed at the economy. They're aimed to reveal Pharaoh's heart. 
What does that mean? Here's what it means. These plagues are designed to unmask Pharaoh's deep heart allegiance. They are meant as tests that reveal what it is that Pharaoh likes best, what it is that Pharaoh loves the most. And by this point in the story, the results are in. And do you know what Pharaoh's heart loves more than anything else? Verse 17, Pharaoh loves Pharaoh more than anything. Verse 17, God says, you are still exalting yourself, Pharaoh, against my people, and you will not let them go. Now, here's the addiction. Pharaoh's heart is addicted to Pharaoh. But more than that, Pharaoh's heart is addicted to self-exaltation. He wants Pharaoh to be lifted up high in his nation, in his own mind, in front of his advisors. That's the thing he treasures. That's the thing he protects, his status, his himself. That's the thing he needs to treasure and protect above all other things. Now, keep that in mind and go back to the question, why does Pharaoh flip-flop? Why does he almost change his heart and not quite? Why does he confess his fault and then turn and go back to the same thing that he had just called sin? Why? Well, if you're inside Pharaoh's heart, it's, it, it makes some sense. Why do I say that? Well, just imagine, imagine you're inside Pharaoh's heart which is weird, and Pharaoh, in his heart, he is exalting himself above everything else. Now, inside Pharaoh's heart, as he's exalting himself above everything else, everything is fine. The weather is calm so long as he's in control, so long as he feels like he's got this thing sorted. But then come the sanctions, and in particular, the hailstorm. And what happens is the hailstorm, as the economy of his nation crumbles, he realizes that his exaltation is beginning to shake and crumble as well. And therefore, the very thing that he treasures most in the world is under threat, and he panics. Pause. A lot of us who are deeply anxious people, we panic when the thing we love most is under threat, or we perceive it to be. Back to Pharaoh. So in his crisis, his greatest treasure is under threat. The, the sanctions, it's not that he loves his nation, it's, it's that he loves himself. It, his exaltation of himself is about ready to shake and it's about ready to fall. And so therefore he will do anything to protect his own exaltation. And protecting his own self-exaltation is the thing that's driving all of his choices in this story and in every other story. Pharaoh self-determines. He's got a lot of self-determination. He's making all his own choices, but despite the fact that he's free to make all of his own choices, it doesn't lead him ultimately to freedom. All of his choices are themselves enslaved to a deeper addiction his addiction and his priority to exalt himself and to protect that exaltation above everything else. And therefore, in order to keep his power and in order to keep control and in order to protect his self-exaltation, he's willing to negotiate temporarily. Stop the hail. I'll give you what you want. Put down the gun. However, it doesn't last. Now, pause here. And look at verse 27 again. 
can you see a manual that it sounds like real conversion? Pharaoh says, I've sinned. The Lord's right, I'm wrong, I surrender. Doesn't that sound like conversion? It's the way we start all our services. Now watch, though. This is very important. Self-exaltation can mimic real religion temporarily. Follow this with me. Do, did you catch Jesus' story in the gospel reading, the New Testament reading? Uh, he tells a story about a Pharisee that goes up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee is this religious leader, so he's clergy, rabbi, something like that. Probably wears a funny shirt like this. And he goes up to the temple to pray. And he appears from a distance to be amazing. From the outside, he's amazing. He's like super religiously observant. Outwardly, he looks perfect. He's like, he's a, he's a good person. And he knows it. But you notice that Jesus is not impressed with him. In fact, Jesus is deeply critical of him. Why? Well, think about it. What is the Pharisee when he's praying in the temple, what is he really after? What is his heart really fundamentally attached to? What is the deepest allegiance of his heart? Look at the story and you'll see that he is a self-exalter just like Pharaoh is. And Jesus sees right through it. The Pharisee's religion is outwardly spectacular, but inwardly it's just as phony as Pharaoh's 15-minute conversion. Self-exaltation, when it is our God, can mimic real religion. Pharaoh says, I'll do anything to stop the, the hail, stop the pain, but mostly I want to just hold on to my power. And I'll even confess that I'm wrong temporarily if I can hold on to my power. And in the same way, the Pharisee in Jesus' story says, I'll do anything to make everyone around me admire me and do anything to make me admire me. And I'll even give my whole life to religious service, but it'll be like a mercenary. And at the end of the day, both Pharaoh and the Pharisee, they are both slaves to self-exaltation. They are neither of them free. Both of them have the opportunity to self-determine their own choices. And yet, all their choices are themselves enslaved by their deeper master, their addiction to self-exaltation. And this is, Emmanuel, so important. You, you, many reasons why this is important. You know one? This explains why it is that highly religious people can be morally fickle. Ever wondered why that happens? Here's what happens. So imagine somebody who's like really super religious. Like, man, they're amazing. But secretly, maybe even secret to them, it's all about self-exaltation. That's the thing that's really got their heart. Now, in that situation, they might be outwardly observant. They might follow all the rules if they think that that is the shortest path to them thinking highly of themselves or other people thinking highly of them. But then, just imagine that something happens. Something threatens that self-exaltation. For instance, maybe they, somebody else embarrasses them or touches a little bit of shame in their lives. Or maybe uh, somebody challenges them in a way that they find really offensive because it's touching on that self-exaltation idol, their real God. And therefore, what'll happen is, maybe they'll lash out in just abusive anger 
or secretly they'll seethe in bitterness and resentment towards the people around them. Or maybe they start thinking, you know what, nobody just, nobody appreciates me. Nobody gets me. And then they find somebody who will. And before long, you know, there's a scandal and there's adultery. Because finally somebody recognizes who I am. But we'll go anywhere to feed the monster. You see how that can happen? So both Pharaoh and the Pharisee, they work the same way underneath the surface. What they really love is themselves. In one sense, it's political power. In another instance, it's religious observance. But both of them are just platforms to feed the deeper issue. And this explains why self-determination can never really finally be our path to freedom. Because Pharaoh self-determines his way to ruin all through the book of Exodus. His heart hardens against God again and again and again, which is another way of saying he clings more closely and more tightly to his own self-exaltation. And he chooses it again and again and again. And the terrible, scary thing in the book of Exodus is that God ratifies that decision. God honors his self-determination. God says, Pharaoh, I'm going to give you what you want if you want it. And that's what Exodus means when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I know some of you may want to talk about that. I'd love to talk about that more, okay? If self-exaltation is our real love, then even if you give us liberty of choice, we will destroy ourselves by our own choice, by choosing ourselves again and again and again, and we might even cloak it in religion. This is the heart of spiritual bondage. But now what's the heart of spiritual freedom? Well, go back to the story, only look at the story mainly from the perspective of Israel. Let me explain what I mean. So in this story, by this point in the book of Exodus, God already knows and he's told Moses that Pharaoh is not going to change his mind. However, God still chooses to go a full ten rounds with Pharaoh. Why? It says in the text, he could have just ended it right then. But God chooses the full ten rounds. The reason is, he knows that Israel's watching. Why does that matter? Well, again, think of it from Israel's perspective. Israel, they've been slaves to Egypt for a very long time. And by this point, they really hard, they don't know God hardly at all. And now they're watching this battle between God and Pharaoh. And as they watch this battle, what's happening is God is introducing himself to Israel as an advocate that they can trust. And just can you imagine how powerful that must have been for Israel? Never had Israel had an advocate, certainly not one that could stand up to someone powerful like Pharaoh. And now, here's God, who he says, call me the Lord. And he says that he loves them, and he shows, a, shows them his love by going to battle against the most powerful man in the world. They're looking at a God that they do not expect. And as they look at this God that they do not expect, all of a sudden they look at each other and they something, say something like, you know, we weren't even sure that God existed a few months ago. Our slavery seemed to suggest he didn't. But now watching him with Pharaoh, it ends up not only is he real, it ends up that he's greater than we ever imagined. Because what happens is, is as they watch God fight Pharaoh, they realize that God is a God both of justice and mercy at the same time. 
and they're riveted by him. Do you see that in the, in the text? God is just and merciful at the same time in the reading. So he's just. He demands that Pharaoh stop his oppression and he won't let Pharaoh get away with it. He won't let Pharaoh weasel his way out. He is a God of justice and you must internalize just how powerful that was for Israel to see. A God of justice is, is very good news for people who are oppressed. But he's not just a God of justice, he's also a God of mercy. And this story is full of mercy. Did you miss it? Did you notice how God warns Pharaoh? There's always a warning. Hey, this is what's going to happen. You get a choice. Do you see how God uh, gives the Egyptians a way to salvage their property? Verse 20, the Egyptians who feared the word, were, the word of the Lord were spared just like Israel spared. There's mercy all the way through here. Do you notice how quickly the Lord stops the hailstorm once Pharaoh surrenders, not surrender? There's mercy everywhere. And Israel's watching all of this. They're watching a God who is a God of justice and a God of mercy at the same time. And verse 29 says that the whole world belongs to this Lord, which must have just blown the minds of Israel because it meant that despite appearances, they were now living in a world where this justice and this mercy were the strongest things around. This is good news for Israel. Now, Jim, why are you jumping up and down about this? Because we're supposed to be talking about the heart of spiritual freedom. Thank you for asking. Here's why I'm jumping up and down about this. Real freedom in the book of Exodus is not a heart that exalts self. Real freedom in the book of Exodus is a heart that exalts the Lord. All through scripture, the freest people you ever find are the people who have lost themselves, almost forgotten themselves, looking at a Lord who is the object of their greatest love because they have received the Lord's love himself. And everything in this story is designed to move Israel, that is to say, to move the reader from self-exaltation to the exaltation of the Lord. That's the whole point of the book of Exodus. And put differently, this story is designed to set Israel free, and it is designed to set us free. And so now that brings us to you and me. Emmanuel, do you want to be free? It's got to be better than self-determination. It's got to be better than just a whole bunch of choices that you're free to make. And you know this. Don't you know this? I mean, come on. Most of us in here have had choices coming out our ears since we were born. You can be anything you want to be. Just make the right choice. You can be, you can be anything you want to be. Did you make the right choice? And so why is it that though we've got all kinds of choice, we have the, we have the most liberty for self-determination than perhaps anybody has ever had, and yet nevertheless, we find ourselves, don't we? We find ourselves confused and anxious and depressed, and we do not know who we are. And we're always looking back, did I make the right choice? Did I? 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 And we're left isolated. 
with every, all the voices around us saying, make the right choice for the purpose of exalting yourself. Never in those language, of course. We need a freedom that's deeper and better than self-determination. And so I ask, do you want to be free? Well, if you do, look over at the gospel reading and look at the tax collector. So who's the tax collector? You know, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they go up to the temple to pray. The tax collector is the bad guy. So he's not a good guy. He's a white-collar, corrupt businessman who has self-determined his way to exalt himself through greed and bribery and theft, and everybody hates him. And as it happens, he hates himself. And yet, as we watch him in this story, we see him standing on the threshold of freedom. Why is he standing on the threshold of freedom? Because he sees, he's, he's hit rock bottom. <laughs> he sees that he's a terrible God for himself. And so he says, God, he doesn't even want to look up at God. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in that moment, Emmanuel, in that moment, that idol, that false God, that addiction, self-exaltation just tips off the throne of his heart and it crashes in pieces on the ground. And Jesus looks at him and he says, everybody look, that's a man who's justified. You want to know the uh, point of the whole Old Testament? <laughs> Never entirely believe a preacher when he says something like that. The, the whole point of the Old Testament is to get us to the place where we are standing with the tax collector, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because I'm just like Pharaoh. I'm just like this Pharisee. I need you to be merciful to me, a sinner, because I'm an addicted self-exalter, and I'll persuade myself that I'm not, but I am and I'll run back to it again and again, and I'll even use you, God, and your commands. I'll even use worship to cover and camouflage my self-exalting heart. And that's why I talk different when I'm talking to my friends, and when I'm at church, and whatever the case. You ever stood at that door, stood at the threshold of freedom? Self-exaltation ever fallen to the ground? Friends, the Old Testament takes us right up to the door of the threshold of freedom. But then Jesus Christ comes and he grabs us by the hand and he pulls us through the door. How does he do that? He does that through the cross. Because when Jesus died upon the cross, he was being murdered by self-exalting religious people. Just like that Pharisee. And just like Pharaoh. And Jesus died, but he died voluntarily. And he died voluntarily in order that through his death, those self-exalters might be set free from their self-exaltation. So when Jesus died upon the cross, Jesus himself was suffering perfect divine sanction against our sin. Jesus himself was suffering all the plagues against Pharaoh and all the plagues that all of us deserve. The same, you see what that means? The same Lord that battled Pharaoh in Exodus on the cross voluntarily suffers his own justice so that guilty self-exalters like me and you and the tax collector and the Pharisee and, the, and Pharaoh and all of us could be set free and begin receive amnesty and taste true freedom. 
So Emmanuel, if you want to be free, look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ who gave away all self-exaltation. He was perfectly humble. Humble to the point of death upon the cross. And he did that in order to give us true exaltation. Do you realize that? You know, the cross of Jesus Christ not only gives us amnesty, it not only takes away our guilt, but it imparts the perfect, infinite dignity of being a child of God. So that through Jesus Christ, we become more exalted than we could ever be through self-exaltation. It's not that Jesus tells us, hey, don't pursue exaltation. It's that Jesus says there's a better way than the self could ever achieve. I will exalt you far above what you could ever imagine. And do you know, do you know who tasted this better than just about anybody I've ever heard of? Jesus' mother, Mary. Because Mary is this teenage girl, Israelite girl, who God calls to do a remarkable thing. And to become the mother of Jesus Christ, she has to set aside herself in a deep and a profound way. And yet, as she sets aside herself and she receives God to be her son, she is set free to sing a remarkable song. And the song that she sings is a song magnifying and exalting the Lord because the Lord had magnified and exalted her far above what she could ever have earned and to And in that way, Mary is a perfect opposite of Pharaoh. Pharaoh exalts himself. Mary magnifies the Lord. Pharaoh is enslaved to himself. Mary is set free by the Lord. And she's free because she sees the beauty of the Lord. The Lord who puts down the mighty from their thrones and exalts the humble and meek. She's saturated with love from the Lord. And that triggers freedom in her to be captivated by love for the Lord. Then she walks free, and that's our path to freedom. So, Emmanuel, if you want to be free, look at Pharaoh and see your own heart. Then follow the tax collector to the threshold of freedom when we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then look at Jesus upon the cross, taking all that you deserve and giving you all that he deserves. And then, finally, join with Mary in the true hymn of freedom. Amen? Let's practice. In joy, we renounce our self-exaltation and we join with the Lord's mother to say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the loneliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he that is mighty has magnified me and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him throughout all generations. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted the humble and meek. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, has helped his servant Israel as he promised to our fathers, Abraham and his seed forever. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. 
Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.